Folks, I apologize for any background noise you might hear. This is Friday morning, and if you know anything about religious Jews, we do a lot of things on Friday to get ready for the Sabbath. So this week I've decided to take my podcast and break it up into themes. I'll label each podcast with what kind of podcast it is, but some of them will be about politics, some of them will be about stories that I'm reading, and some of them will be about religion. Now, the question, of course, is, is what am I doing bringing religion into politics? Religion, people would argue, has no place in politics. We have a secular state, a state in which the government has no religion. And in many ways, that's true. The U.S. political system is set up as a playing field in which different value systems can compete with one another without resorting to violence. And I have absolutely no objection to that. However, I believe that any politician who has an ideology has a religion. It may not involve God, but they have a religion. They have a value system that they serve. We can see this in history. Communism, which was entirely materialistic, served the values of equality. may not have served them well, but that was the goal. Likewise, German fascism served the values of race. Again, perhaps not very well, but that was the goal. We can see tremendous extremes all being in the service of particular value systems, including libertinism or various other religious forms that are explicitly uh, religious in nature. So for me, religion plays a critical role because it's the way in which you state what your values are. And so I'm not going to ignore religion. Instead, I'm going to speak about it and let you judge whether or not my value systems are compatible with yours. Now, there are those who would say that science should tell us what's appropriate, and science is not religion. And that's true. Science is very good at answering a particular question. That question is, if we do X, or if X happens, what will happen? If we do X, then Y will happen. That's what science can tell us. If we do X, then Y will happen. But science doesn't actually do X. Engineering does. And science never tells us whether or not Y is good. I'll give you an example that's very close to home. My wife is an audiologist. She works with hearing aids and with people who have hearing problems. Science can tell us that if you can mimic the electrical impulses of hair cells within the ear, you can help certain kinds of deafness and enable people to hear to some degree. Engineering can bring us the cochlear implant, but neither one of those disciplines can tell us whether or not that is a good thing. Now, it might seem obvious to you that bringing hearing to deaf people is a good thing, but within the deaf community, it's quite controversial. People in the deaf community often believe that if they give their children who are born deaf hearing, then they're excluding them from the community that they naturally belong to. They're putting them in the hearing world instead of, instead of enabling them to remain part of their natural community, which is the deaf world. Is this correct? Is this good? Is this right? Well, that's the kind of value question that science can't answer, but different value systems can. So I'll lay it right out here. My value system is simple. I want to maximize the creative potential of humankind, of people. At the same time, I want to fight against risk and loss and fear. Now, in our political systems, these are two opposing values. The maximizing of creative potential typically falls on the right side of the equation, and the fighting against risk and loss and fear typically falls on the left side of the equation. 
but I believe it's critical to balance things that seem contradictory and in many cases are contradictory. Because if you pick only one good and you maximize it, you end up creating something evil. You end up creating kinds of monsters that we saw in Russia and in Germany in the 20th century. So those are the values I stand for, but those are the broad values. So what I want to talk about each week is I want to bring, well, perhaps each week, we'll see how we go. I want to bring a short word of Torah, a short bit of Bible study to deal and tackle with a complicated or a challenging question in the Torah portion of the week. I have found this to be very helpful for me in my own political understandings. So this week, I want to talk about the burning bush. Moses is walking along in the wilderness, and he sees a bush that burns but is not consumed. He's drawn to the bush, and because he is drawn to the bush, God chooses him as the leader who will bring the people out of the land of Egypt, who will bring them out of slavery. So the question is, is why? Why is this the selection criteria? The first answer, the first obvious answer, is that the burning bush represents the creation of energy without the consumption of anything. In other words, the burning bush is beyond our natural reality. The laws of thermodynamics tell us that this is not something that is possible. So Moses recognizes something that is beyond the natural, and he's drawn to it. But I think it's more than just beyond the natural. It is an expression of ultimate goodness, the idea that you can create without destroying. In our human existence, everything we do has trade-offs. Everything we create involves destruction. So Moses is fundamentally good and is drawn to this concept. But of course, why does this matter for the Exodus? Why is it important that the Jewish people be brought out of Egypt with this concept in mind? This starts off, understanding this starts off with understanding how we got the Exodus in the first place. Way back earlier in Genesis, in Bereshit, God says, I brought you out of Ur Kazdim, literally the destroyers of light, this very dark place. And I brought you here. And Avraham says, how can I know that I'm going to inherit this land? The question is, is why is Avraham questioning? Perhaps Avraham thought he left by himself. Perhaps his pride didn't give space for God. But I think there's another answer that's a lot more troubling. Avraham's father was the first person in the Torah to leave one culture and go to another. What made him leave? I think the answer is, is that his oldest, sorry, is that one of his sons died. His son died. He couldn't stay where he was. And so he left. I have personal experience, not with having a child of mine die, God forbid, but my, my oldest brother died. And the day he died, my parents left. And my mother never went back to the place where they had lived before, where they had poured their lives in creating reality there. She'd never gone back. So when God is saying, I brought you out of Orkazdim, God is saying, perhaps, that I killed your brother so that your father would leave. This is not the kind of thing that inspires trust. This is not the kind of thing that inspires love. This is not the kind of thing that shows goodness. And as we go onwards into the exodus in Egypt, the Jewish people are put in a position where they cannot rescue themselves. God promises them they're going to be exiled after this. When God, when Avraham asks this question, God says, you will be exiled and I will bring you out. The exodus shows the people who are unable to recover. There's never been until, until Haiti, there had never been a successful slave revolt that actually resulted in long-term freedom for the slaves. 
So the slaves leave Egypt. And when they leave Egypt, God's power is demonstrated because they couldn't take themselves out. God had to take them out. But God's goodness is not apparent because they were under the control of a genocidal ruler. They were under control of somebody who intended to kill all of them, who intended to eliminate the people. So there's a difficulty. The Jewish people leave and they can't trust God. They can't see God's goodness. This is not simply an ancient problem. This is a very modern problem. The Jewish people were recently in the Holocaust. It scarred us deeply. And then afterwards, just like with the Exodus, we were brought out and we were brought back home to our land. And we can't see the goodness in God. We can't see the goodness in what happened to us. This happened with my mother as well. Among her last words on her deathbed was, God is so far away. She had lost so much. She had been, uh, in her way, a child of the Holocaust. But she had also lost her own son. And she was distant from God. She had a hard time having a relationship with him or her, if you prefer. I think this is the central challenge of Judaism. To integrate the good and the evil and to make them into something that is somehow entirely good. And so I think that's why Moses is chosen in this way. He's drawn to the goodness of God. He's drawn to goodness in the bush. And he's able to find God within it. How does this apply to us today? Why is this relevant to candidate everyone? Well, the United States has experienced goodness. And it has experienced great evil. We see coming up again and again, legitimately coming up again and again, remembrances and connections to the days of slavery and to the days in which the Native American population was largely eliminated. These were dark periods in our history. I think in order to succeed going forward, in order to bring the nation up and bring it forward, we have to not turn that darkness into more darkness, into more hatred. Instead of reopening those wounds constantly, we have to find a way to transform that darkness into light. We have to have leadership that is not only drawn to goodness, but that begins to understand how the difficulties in our past, how the darkness in our past can actually be used to build a better future. And that, of course, is what I'm aiming to do. So thank you for listening to my first Torah podcast, and uh, I hope there'll be many more in the future. As they say in Judaism, Shabbat Shalom. May you have a Sabbath of peace. Thank you.